1: Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Batten Drive, Mount Maunganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old airplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. It's a great place and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com.
2: Vintage Aviation News is pleased to support Wings Over Britain and Wings Over New Zealand. And we'll be checking in with reports as Dave's tour progresses. Vintage Aviation News is an organization founded by a group of passionate vintage aviation enthusiasts who love to share the history and technology aviation museums preserve for the public. It's our intention to play a role in safeguarding the heritage of these beautiful machines by providing increased awareness and education through the use of Internet-based digital media. Vintage Aviation News is an online news resource dedicated to warbirds, aviation museums, vintage aviation, and aviation heritage, and the many enthusiasts who wish to know more about them. The goal of this site is to provide fresh daily news content for a large community of aviation fans who visit our page regularly. Vintage Aviation News Online can be found on your usual social media channels and at VintageAviationNews.com.
0: Hi, Melanie here from Aviation Tours, unique itineraries for aviation
3: enthusiasts, taking you to some of the most amazing air shows and events in the UK and Australia. They're leisurely, comfortable, fun, escorted, and to all the places you've been wanting to visit. If independent travels out of your comfort zone or you just prefer the good company of fellow enthusiasts on a tour taking in the best aviation, motoring and military museums, take a look at our website aviationtoursnz.com for more info and join us on the trip of a lifetime. Or call me for a chat on 021 076
0: 8308. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. I want to welcome Lewis Day to the show. Hi, Lou. I, mean, I know that you're a you're a pilot. You you uh, were a pilot for many many years, and I wonder if you could take me right back to the very beginning. Uh, where were you born? And where did you grow up?
3: I was born in Chicago. Okay. When?
0: Seventeenth of July, nineteen twenty-three. Oh wow. So you're only a few weeks off 100? Uh, five weeks, yes. Gosh, wow. What were, your, what were your early influences with aviation? Did you see much in the way of aeroplanes around in Invercargill?
3: Oh, not in those days. No. I didn't get involved uh, until I was with the family in Christchurch.
0: Okay, okay. When did you move up there?
3: Oh, I, uh, we left in the Congo and went to Whamaray and lived in Whamaray and went from Whamaray to uh, Christchurch. Yep. Uh, oh, right. yeah, it would be 10 years old, already.
0: Okay, okay.
3: Uh, I started school in all the places.
0: Yep, right, right. So I guess in Christchurch, the main hub for aviation would have been at Wigram.
3: I was based at well when I when I eventually got into the air force, I was uh, flying at Harewood.
0: Okay, okay, yep. I, I was meaning while while you were still a kid, did you go to Wigram much as a kid and and look at the aircraft?
3: I, when I was doing my schooling in Christchurch, yeah, every now and again, I could have a quick look at uh, Wigram, see what they were see what they were doing.
0: Okay. So, so tell me about when you actually joined the air force. Uh, what what was the process, and uh, when did you join?
3: Well, my, my father went overseas during the war, and I went to live with my mother in Napier. Okay. And when I turned eighteen, she gave her approval for me to become a pilot. And I applied to the New Zealand Air Force. And there was a, a great queue for people because they couldn't cope with the numbers that were involved. Right. And I wasn't I wasn't enlisted until October nineteen forty two.
0: Okay. Okay. What what were you doing uh, up until then? Uh, did you have a job or?
3: Yes, I when I left when I left school in Gore, I got a job uh, in customs in Vancouver. Oh, okay, yeah. Right. Not that I wanted that, but that's what I got.
0: So, was there much international shipping coming in and out of Vancouver in those days? Yeah, uh, not
3: really. I I was very junior and uh, spent most of my time sketching and doing things just what I wanted to do, rather <laughs> right.
0: than <basketball>. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and so uh, when you actually did get called up uh, in 1942 to go along and start your training, uh, where did you start?
3: I started in Karama. Oh,
0: right. Yeah.
3: And I was based in, uh, we were based in a uh, ground business waiting in the queue to become pilots.
0: Right, right. So there was an aerodrome defence unit.
3: I went from Tarama to Rotorua to start my first ground training. Yep. And and then from Rotorua, I was pressured to Harewood to start my flying.
0: Okay. And do you remember your first flight in a tiger moth there?
3: Like, okay. that's what I did. Yeah.
0: Yep. Hmm. Do, do you have any sort of memories of flying the tigers there?
3: Uh, no, not as such. I was uh, uh, one of 40 odd, actually, all of whom were merely uh, getting involved, yeah. And I teamed up with a, a chef from who was who said, "Oh, I uh, I'm going to Canada to do my advanced training." And I said, "I didn't know there was such a thing." And he said, "Yes, there was. He says good." I said, "Good. I'll join you." And I applied. And I got to Canada, and he wasn't selected. Oh, okay.
0: Wow. So where, where I, did you where did you go to in Canada? I was in Brandon, Manitoba. Oh, yep, yep. And so yeah. was that on um... on Cessna Cranes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Cessna Cranes. Was in,
3: in those days,
0: what were they like to fly?
3: Oh, just another aeroplane, as you told. Yeah. no, it was uh, quite straightforward. It was quite good in Canada, but it was cold.
0: Right. Yeah. I didn't
3: yeah. go. I didn't go there till close to Christmas, and the temperatures were pretty awful.
0: Right. Right. However,
3: yeah, I finished my flying there, and I ended up as the honor student for the course. Oh wow. Uh, there have been forty or something on that on that course actually, and uh, they all gave in and let me win.
0: <laughs> right, and so where did you progress to next?
3: And when I when I qualified there and got my wings, I uh, I was posted to um, Prince Edward Island to do a a Ground course on navigation. Okay. And when I had completed that, I was uh,
0: sent to England. Prince Edward Island. uh, That's where the guys were trained for coastal command, wasn't it?
3: In at Prince
0: at Prince Edward Island. That's where the guys who were going to coastal command were trained, wasn't it? Were were you? yeah, were you destined to go from there on to Coastal Command?
3: Well, I went to went to England and I teamed up with a, another New Zealander who happened to have been on an earlier course in Canada oh, and yeah. been instructing there. And he said, uh, "Oh, we've all been trained for Coastal Command. You don't want to go. Everybody was being recruited for Bomber Command in those days."
0: Yeah.
3: And. Uh, you don't want to do that. You can, you can come to coach, come and make an application for Coast of Command, which I did and succeeded. And uh, eventually, I did my initial training in the UK and be- eventually uh, became a pilot on flying boats on Sundance.
0: Okay. So what were... What were you training on before the Sunderland? Did you go, or did you go straight into the Sunderland, flying there? uh...
3: Well, uh, in England, uh, we
0: had to do. Oh,
3: we just did some flying in Oxford, basically.
0: Ah, yes, yep. And and that was really just to get an idea of the area and.
3: Just, just to get you one step nearer to qualifying.
0: Right, 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 right. And what did you think of the Sunderlands when you got onto them?
3: Oh, well, the Sunderland was marvellous. I had I had a very, very uh, capable skipper to right. look after me. And
0: uh, we did very well. But were there any other Kiwis in your crew?
3: Not in that crew. Dennis was, uh, was a, a, a quite a... He was 10 years, 11 years older than me. Okay, and he was a qualified. He was from the UK, and uh, there was I was the only New Zealander, and they had four Australians, and a couple of Welshmen, and a couple of Scotsmen. Well, and,
0: uh, quite a quite a varied crew. That's interesting.
3: Yeah, certainly was, but, but the. Uh, my skipper was particularly capable. So uh, uh,
0: were you doing lots of patrols from from Britain uh, in this training well, period?
3: Once we qualified on the Feltlander, we were doing, yes, we were doing patrols in the Atlantic. Yep. Uh, as part of the training. Center. And then uh, my skipper being relatively senior, uh we were selected to qualify to take some uh, overseas okay and i we ended up by, by doing a trip down to uh, east africa of all things to take an, a brand new Sandland down there to to take over Or, or to start putting Sundons in to replace Catalinas.
0: Right. When you did those ferry flights, Lou, did you take the whole crew with you?
3: Yes, yes. Dennis was very, very adamant. We had we had a crew of ten, and although on the ferry work they said we require five people. He said, No, I want 10. Okay. I've got, to pop, I've got to pop a proper crew. And right. the, the 10 of us were all together. Excellent. And we went back to the UK uh, and qualified on the latest model of the Sunderland. Uh, and the next thing I knew, uh, we were selected. To take the first of the Mark 5 Sundlins out to Singapore.
0: Oh, right, okay.
3: And that was another nice trip. So, my, my skipper in the meantime had gone unserviceable. Uh, I was switched to another crew yep. and I ended up initially in Burma. Fine. With the RAF, yeah, uh, and uh, against the Japanese.
0: Okay, okay, yep. Uh, and so, where were you based there?
3: Well, uh, yes, I I finished my tour in uh, in Burma, and we were based in Salon. And okay. my my old skipper got fit again. And we formed our original crew again. Uh, and we, then they got the uh, Japanese gave in and we moved down to Singapore. And I got to Singapore in time for the official handing over of the, of the Japanese.
0: Right. Uh,
3: completing the paperwork for uh, the end of the war. Okay, and at that time, the New Zealand Air Force found out where the old New Zealanders were, and I was one of them and they they found me in Singapore and sent me home.
0: right, right. C- can I just take you back, Lou? Um, I believe that you on one of your patrols, uh, I think from Burma, you might have you got shot up by a sampan.
3: Yeah, we got shot up in Japan, no, no, in Burma. We were, uh, we flew out of Burma into uh, Malaya, as it was in those days.
0: Yeah.
3: And we were, we we carried out an attack on Japanese. um, Yeah, and uh, unfortunately, they were rather well armed and made a lot of holes in the bottom of our boat.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
3: And uh, then we had to stack a, back up to Burma again, actually, and carry out repairs on the aircraft to stop it from sinking. Yep. And at that particular point, well, that was quite successful. About two days later, we got airborne out of Burma Went back down to Salon again, actually, for the airplane to be overhauled properly and put together again. Oh right! Wow. Okay. <laughs> and when when we got it put again, actually, uh, that, that's when the Air Force got us airborne, and we ended up we ended up in, uh, in Singapore.
0: Right. Right, so um, with the war over in Singapore, what were, what were your duties then uh, in Singapore? Well,
3: in Singapore we were operating uh, basically, uh, we were, well, we were filling in time because the Air Force, the New Zealand Air Force, caught up with me, yeah. and uh, they probably... Uh, there was, I think there were two or three, three New Zealanders overall in the Far East, who were all collectively sent back to New Zealand actually uh, to the New Zealand Air Force.. Yep. Uh, when I arrived back in Auckland, my parents were living in Auckland at that stage, and uh, I arrived back in New Zealand on a Friday. And the following Monday I went out to Harewood, uh, not Herewood, to uh, Hobsonville.
0: Yeah.
3: And uh, said, I've just come back from overseas. Uh, and the CEO said, go home and wait and hear from us. We'll get in touch with you. So I went back home. Yeah. And within a, within a week or two, I got notice from the New Zealand Air Force, which was discharged discharge. Oh, right. There was no discussion about what or where I'd been, what I'd done, or anything at all. It was goodbye. Wow. But uh, I, I got back into New Zealand sometime after the majority of the New Zealanders had returned from the, from the Pacific, and they had plenty of plenty of spare people than they knew about without picking on me.
0: Right, right. So all the good jobs were, were already taken. There's nothing for you.
3: Well, I had barely got used to that. I, I went back again. I got, I got a job back again in customs in Auckland. Okay. And then next thing I know, I get a notice from the RAF... Uh, which was recruiting people for the Cold War in uh, New Zealand, Canada, Australia, South Africa. And I probably thought, oh, I'd done a lot of my flying over there and I thought this was good. I'll uh, I'll do that. And I accepted a four-year commission with the RAF.
0: Right, okay. Uh,
3: And then I was... uh, Closely associated with my brother, or one of my brothers, <clears throat> who had a girlfriend down on Pukakari, and I, I was joined—I had joined them in company when I uh, promptly met his girlfriend's sister. Okay. And I said, "Ah." Oh, I'm sorry, I won't be staying here in New Zealand. I'm going off to England on a four-year commission, and I won't see you for another four years. so we just I decided we'd get married instead. I'll take her and share all about it.
0: <laughs> wow.
3: <laughs> and uh, she said yes. my father said my my. Father-in-law said no. Her grandfather said, "Go away! He's got nothing to do with you. Leave them alone. They're enjoying themselves." So we married. Wow! And we've and i properly took Doreen to England on my four-year commission with the RAF.
0: Fantastic. I believe you've just recently celebrated your seventy-fifth wedding anniversary, haven't you?
3: Seventy-six.
0: Seventy-six. Wow.
3: Yeah. Fantastic. We. Did. we uh, well, I went to the UK, saying, "Yeah, you'll have a wonderful life. Actually, it's a great life in the service." <clears throat> when I got to the UK, they said, "I said, what they said, what do you want to do? I said, go back on the sandals, please." And they said, no, you can't fly Sunderland's, you haven't flown 400 land planes. So I spent a year flying Oxfords and Wellingtons and eventually Lancasters. Right. And when I qualified on the Lancaster, they promptly gave me permission to go back and do the Air Force course on Sunderland's which I had done years ago, years before. Right. <laughs> and I got back onto Somlins. But in those days, actually, the Air Force was so big that there was no such thing as having married courses available. And so we used to have to live somewhere handy and turn up from work every morning.
0: Right, right.
3: It was uh, and it wasn't the life we had set out to. To, to enjoy uh, and then out, out of the blue the, the RAF probably turned around and said oh we want some experienced flying boat pilots in the far east and I was one of those that was nominated
0: oh, right. okay. To do that
3: <clears throat> and uh, they sent me out to the far east back out to Singapore again and Doreen wasn't allowed to go because we didn't have; they didn't have any accommodation for wives in Singapore. Oh wow! And she had to stay. She stayed in Scotland, in, in fact, in Wales at the time, yeah. until such time as I found suitable accommodation in Singapore. And and the Air Force probably turned around, and they had a large number of wives in the UK, all of whom had. Officers in the service in Singapore, uh, and they put them all on one boat. Oh, right! And they came out to uh, out to join us in Singapore, and we went back through the same procedure living living uh, in the city and going to work every morning. Right, and then. After a few weeks, the, the uh, Far East Lineboat Wing probably uh, accepted the uh, Korean War requirement and out of the blue, they probably <clears throat> took three three of us qualified Southern pilots to go to uh, Korea or to get because we based in Japan for operations in Korea. Okay. And uh, I met my wife every now and again, but uh, I did two years in Korea actually. Well, I did two years between Singapore, Hong Kong, and Japan operating out of Korea. And we were involved fairly heavily committed in Singapore, in uh, involved in the Malaysian War, the Malaya War.
0: Right, right, the Malayan Emergency.
3: So I did not have I did not I didn't have a forty operations actually with with them dropping bombs on people who wanted to take over the. Malaya.
0: So, were you dropping bombs on on jungle target type things? Was it? In- we were Uh-oh.
3: we were dropping bombs on targets which were been were plotted out by some experts in the in, in the British Army. Yeah, uh, and all the. All, all the naughty, all naughty boys, which were causing the trouble, all lived in villages in the middle of the desert, yeah. and that was on the right on the boundary of as it was a there was Siam in those days. Yeah, and uh, and Malaya, and so we would get called out at five o'clock in the morning and go up to Malaya and drop 160 bombs. Wow. On an area of forest, which was designed and planned for us so that that we could fly quite accurately and just drop these bombs and spent ages, but it took 10, Ten trips to get rid of all the bombs we had. Actually, we dropped sixteen bombs every time when we went out, <laughs> got there.
0: Yeah,
3: and we uh, we landed, refueled, put more bombs on board, went back again. I said, did that forty-one times. Wow. Gosh, so, uh, what
0: what size bombs were they, Lou?
3: They were. 25 pound uh, anti-personnel ones. Ah, yes, yep, yep. So, so if you succeeded in getting into an area where there were human beings, they, they couldn't get away, actually. Well, most of, most of them are killed outright, right. I think.
0: Right, okay.
3: But uh, I ended up by dropping... 6,400 bombs in
0: Malaya. Oh, uh, wow. Holy moly. I, I never actually realized that the Sunderlands dropped bombs on, on land in Malaya. I thought that you guys were just doing, you know, maritime patrol type stuff. That's interesting.
3: No, nothing like that.
0: Okay. That's that's very interesting. The,
3: the, the uh, rest of our tactics were all the tactics working. We, are, we were actually attached to the American Air Force. Uh, fleet air wing six. Okay. Uh in Japan and we operate in Korea. Uh, they had 16 uh mariners and yep. we used to we used to put four aircraft up there at a time to do a spell and come back again they send another four up to replace us and we, we did it with four aircraft we did the same number of operations as the sixteen Mariners had to do
0: okay and, and, and so so you were flying quite a bit um you know there was a like a daily routine and when you're up in Korea very or? much
3: very yeah. much so actually yes yeah uh well it was usually takes about three days to get you would we would end up by starting out in the early morning and go out and do a trip. And then you'd have a day when they searched the aircraft and got it ready for the next day before you went out again.
0: Yep. Okay.
3: And then eventually the uh, the flying boat wing were designed to go into China and check the weather for all these aircraft, which were American Air Force and Canadian Air Force and whatever, uh, doing their job in uh, Korea. Okay. So we would go into China and then work slowly back, checking the weather and cross-checking the weather and then reporting of the Redder to uh, 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 boats the Navy.
1: Uh, yep. in,
3: the, in the Royal Navy.
0: Yep.
3: And we reported the conditions as to whether it was fit or not for them, for the others to be able to get airborne to do their job.
0: Okay. Uh, so that. When you say boats, that would be like the aircraft carriers that were, yeah,
2: doing air,
0: Yeah, doing airstrikes. So, was it dangerous for you to be flying into Chinese airspace?
3: Uh, well, we never actually, never actually got, got attacked. We were well equipped, of course. Yeah. Uh, military-wise, actually, we we had we had sixteen guns on board anyway. And uh, we were chased every now and again, actually, by, the, by uh, airplanes from, Korea, from China. But nobody ever, they didn't even dare to have a go at us. Okay. Fortunately.
0: Well,
3: that's,
0: that, that's fascinating because technically you weren't at war with China, but but the Cold War, obviously, you're not really meant to be flying over there. So, yeah, interesting. Very interesting.
3: It was quite different, yeah. Yeah. Um, Then eventually, uh, eventually, of course, we finished our Singapore (laughs) and uh, I met my wife again and took her back to England.
0: Right. Right.
3: (laughs) And and then I I, uh, became an instructor in the uh, Royal Air Force, and ended up as an instructor and a flight commander in the uh, Cranwell at the Royal Air Force, the Royal College, right. Uh, flight, which was very good for my career, <laughs> <It really is. laughs> and uh, I, I did my tour there. And went back again to Central Flying School, and became an instructor at the Sundance Flight Commander at Central Flying School. Uh, when they decided that I had, had enough of that, and I ended up in uh, in Topcliffe as the CEO of the number one air navigation school at Topcliffe. Okay. Yep. And I spent uh, two years. We used to do two years when really, we do two years at CFS, two years at Cramwell, two years somewhere and so on. Yeah. And I did two years at Top Flip, uh training, so, uh, navigators on how to survive operating big aeroplanes.
0: Right. Right. So um, just taking you back to Cranwell, what were you flying there? What type? We were in
3: Cranwell, we were flying harbots,
0: chipmunks, yep.
3: chipmunks Baleals. and
0: balioles. And And what? Jetpons. Oh, and the jetpods. Okay, me. yeah. yeah. What, what was the B- baliol like to fly? It's not a very Bale- well-known type. What was the Baileyol like to fly?
3: Uh, it was a, a handful. Okay. It, we had the the majority of our to at uh, Cranwell was such that we were all on the advanced side of the thing and the, the chappies that came to the, the cadets would come and join us. Having completed their time, of 100 hours on chipmunks and, or uh, harvests and what have you. Right. And yep. when, they, when they got onto the Balliol, it was a real fair dinkum handful as far as they were concerned. Okay. It, was, it had 1,300 horsepower. Uh, it had engines which had propellers which rotated the opposite way around to what all these ships have been trained in. Oh, okay. And as such, of course, the niche, if if the chefy sat at the end of the runway and got the OK for takeoff and put the power on and put it put it all on in one go, the airplane just peeled off peeled off the runway. Oh. Because it wasn't wasn't possible to hold it straight using using the rudder. Oh wow. And so we had to take these ships very slowly and very carefully to ease on a little bit of power. And then, as the rudder gripped, put on a bit more power until eventually you got all the power on uh, and the aeroplane was capable of being taken off. Right. It also had. It had spinning difficulties for as well, actually. So we had problems with those brakes too, actually. Every now and again somebody somebody wrote an aircraft off for for doing it wrong.
0: Right. Okay. Wow. something,
3: something that never happened on the easy airplanes in the early stages.
0: Right, right. And at CFS were were you on the uh, jet provost there?
1: You know,
0: really? Jet products. Yeah. yeah. So uh, uh, what, what did you think of flying jets? Well, it was
3: too easy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had, to, again, they introduced the jet promise and said that they uh, wanted, they thought they would like it for the Royal Air Force for training purposes. Yeah. And uh, I was one of the few people who was given one to say, go and try it out. And of course, uh, as such, it was a piece of cake. It was, it was dead easy because it didn't, it didn't yaw, and it didn't swing, and it didn't uh, do all the things that the airplanes they'd been used to had been doing.
0: Right, right.
3: <laughs> and you could sit in the jet on the jet on and get the OK, put the power on, put the whole lot on, and go. <laughs> And uh, my my comments on the jet progress was, yes, it was all right. We, we did the initial training, but my uh, personal view to the Air Force was that it was far too easy. The chips aren't going to learn the hard way.
0: Right, right. Okay.
3: However, they introduced the jet problems anyway, actually, yeah.
0: Yeah, well yeah. Uh, yeah. So at, at the air navigation school, what were you flying there? Only.
3: the Varsity. Varsity. At Varsity at Chopper. Varsity's yeah. yeah. and Ballettes.
0: Okay, yep. They were both
3: they were both the same. Two engine aeroplanes. Uh, with a with a good ranger and in fact flying on those particular operations we got we used to get out as far as the Middle East in fact we used to get down to the south down to the east coast of Africa wow. and we would go to Malta Okay. and we would go into Norway and they. They got the works. Yeah. It was, it was, oh, it was wonderful. Oh, I, I had a ball. I, mean, uh, uh, <laughs> I had a wonderful job.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it.
3: And then ev- eventually, of course, the Air Force turned, the RAF turned around and said, Oh, my four-year commission, of course, I'd ended up by doing a a course with some experts. And I was given a permanent commission in the uh, in the Royal Air Force, and I ended up by doing fourteen years in there. Right. And at the at the end of that time, the Air Force had more people than they needed, and the people in my in my position who had been ones who had been brought in for the Cold War were given the opportunity to retire, and still qualify for a pension all right. uh, five years earlier than, than the normal. So at the age of 38, I had, I had a wife and three children, or three boys, all of them, all of whom had nothing much ever to do with the Air Force as such. Other than when we had a formal occasion when they had to turn up, anyway. Uh, and uh, Joanne said it's, we should take the children home. Which yep. we did. And I arrived back in New Zealand in 1962. Uh, ex raf
0: yeah,
3: And reported and, sa- and said can I Rejoin? Could I? Could be proud of the New Zealand? They said no, no, no. We've got too many people already entering, here. and and so I ended up without a job. Right. And and I tried Teal, who were operating submarines and those or the equivalent of flying boat, the submarine yep. flying boat. They were operating submarines. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and they said, "No, we don't need you." And uh, I then applied for NAC. NAC said, oh, "As a pilot, we can't give you a job until such time as you are qualified on Morse code." <laughs> okay. And I I started doing a course on Morse code. And uh, in, the, in the end, well, the, the, this, was, you know, this was the original one, wasn't it? Yeah. This was when I was first, home the first time.
0: Right, right. And
3: in the meantime, the RAF took over and took me home. And when I came home again, I was too old.
0: Ah, uh, right, yeah.
3: And I couldn't get a job in the civil sort of flying.
0: Right, right, yeah.
3: So uh, I didn't.
0: Mm. Okay. And then,
3: and then, out of the blue, actually, uh, I, I went back to the civil aviation and said, Here, yeah, have you got anywhere where I can get a job as a flying instructor? And they came back and said, Oh, Gora's just separated from in the cargo, and it's formed an aero club. There and they need an instructor. They haven't got one. Right. Uh, Would you like to go down there and fly with them? And I said, I'll go down and have a look at it. So I went down to Gore, and oh, they were great friends. They're all nice uh, farming people.
0: Right. Yep.
3: And uh, I said, oh, I I trained them. I qualified. From Christchurch, I went to Gore and qualified for for uh, university, but never had any money to be able to <laughs> to go into it.
0: Right. Yep.
3: So I uh, I knew Gore fairly well, and uh, they said, "Yeah, well, well, hey, you can become our instructor and." So I did. Right. And I went from Auckland, took the family lock, stock and barrel down to uh, Gore and became the CFI. Now, the CFI because it was only one instructor anyway. <laughs> and <laughs> I we operated seven days a week. Wow. Yeah. And I we um, instructed. I instructed in uh, oh, what? Queenstown.
0: Yeah. yeah.
3: And yeah. where else? Oh, mm-hmm. uh, Belclutha. Yeah. Oh
0: yeah. Said, yep.
2: You
3: know, quite a few uh, mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and. Harriet. Okay. And that kept me occupied. That was Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. Every week. Right. And on the Wednesday, I had off. Like provided that the, the airplanes didn't need servicing.
0: Okay. Yep.
3: If if they needed servicing, I had to take them down and spend the day in, mm-hmm. in the cargo. While I did the overhaul work yep. on the aircraft, and that, that was my that was my day. Saturday and Sunday, I was flat out uh, as an instructor at Gore doing the aeroclub training then. Right. We started out at that stage. We started out with uh, uh, two aircraft: a Tiger Moth and an Ostra.
0: Okay. Yep.
3: And that was it. And with my background and experience, uh, I had a requirement to take airplanes to different places. And we ended up by uh, buying a Victor.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh,
3: 172. And a Mooney. Right. the club did very well. It, it moved from a, a total of 92 people, most of whom weren't pilots anyway, they were just members of the club.
0: Yep. Uh,
3: and when I had ended up three years in Goa, uh, we had 340 odd wow. in the club.
0: Wow, that's excellent.
3: And they all wanted to fly.
0: Wow, that's brilliant. I
3: I managed to find another instructor who was totally inexperienced. Yeah. And I needed, I could have spent all my time teaching them how to do things properly, actually, rather than teaching other people how to fly aeroplanes. However, I ended up by uh, the opportunity. Came for me to go to Auckland, and Doreen said, Oh, good, let's go back home again. Right. Because she came from Fukuokohe.
0: Right, right.
3: And I went back to Auckland, back to Ardmore, and uh, started instructing at Auckland Aero Club. And I had gone there at a time, I had gone there initially to get my instructor rating. Right and uh, there were eight instructors there, and when I went back three years later, there were two. Oh, and all the rest had joined New Zealand Air Force, or, the, or they joined Air yeah, New Zealand, or yeah, and, uh, so on. And so instead of going back and, and and saying, "Good, I'll be one of many," I became one who got demanded... <laughs> to provide full services to employ new new instructors.
0: Right, right.
3: And I after after four years at Auckland near Oakland the the committee fired all my staff wow. on the grounds that I had employed too many. And I complained bitterly to them and said, you might at least have given me the opportunity because they fired the staff with the option to reapply for a job.
0: Okay.
3: At the club. And I said, if you'd done the thing properly that would have told me what you were doing, and I would have been one of them because I'm just another instructor. So they fired me and I didn't reapply.
0: Okay. Oh, wow.
3: And, and around about that time, I was approached by uh, Airwork, who were operating an aircraft for New Zealand forest pilots. Right. From scratch, and they wanted, they needed an instruct, they needed, instructor. They needed not an instructor, they needed a pilot. Okay. So I took a, took a job with Airwork. And uh, I did that for uh, 30, 30 odd years.
0: Wow, gosh. <laughs> and, so uh, w- was that sort of was that corporate flying like taking businessmen around or
3: yeah, there were the basic job for forest products was two flights a day, Hard more or Ardmore to to can leave.
0: Oh yes. To the yep. factory there.
3: We'd go down in the morning at ten past eight, come back again just after just after nine. Yeah. And and then do exactly the same in the afternoon, four o'clock and again at five o'clock back to Ardmore again. Okay. Did those two flights a day. Week after week after week.
0: Wow. Uh,
3: with the occasional one where the boss of Forest Polish Society had business in Wellington and they'd taken there and do so and then And then in the meantime, out of the blue, uh, Airwork took on a job with uh, Westpac To help them to use the twin engineer fixing the airplane to escort them or to do pre-work when they were doing their search and rescue and air ambulance stuff. Okay. So then we started doing, then we got involved with air ambulance work. As well as the search and rescue, yeah, and that kept me going for ten years, right? And uh, that was a wonderful life, great.
0: Wow. So, yeah, so, uh, so you were you were still based in Auckland and flying out of Ardmore for that time uh, with air work? Yes. yes, that's right. Can you tell me when you first got back to Ardmore uh, with the Auckland Air Club, what was it like then? Was it a really busy place like it is now? Was there a lot of flying schools there? Or or was it much quieter like? There was one flying school. There was two. It was two. two okay. I think. Yeah.
3: Yep. And, uh, it, it was quite different to being down in Gore, that for sure. Right. But, uh, yeah, it was all right. it was, yeah, it was all right. Okay. And uh, the Airy Club, well, the air Club's still going.
0: Yep, sure it is, yeah. But I don't,
3: they don't want to know me anymore. Oh. Come
0: man Come on. Huh?
3: You're still patron there. Eh? Uh, yeah, I, I happen to be patron, but I, when I turn up there, they say, oh, hello, and the next thing you say oh, goodbye. <laughs> and we had, uh, yeah, however, it yeah. was great. I, it, the only problem I ultimately had, of course, was that the, the lady doctor in... Uh, Wellington in Civil Aviation probably took my license off me and said, you're not fit. Okay. And that came from nowhere. It didn't even come from the doctor who had done the medical. And I rang the doctor and he said, it's not my job to say whether you're fit or not. I do the homework. I do the, the uh, examination. And she sent him down to Civil Aviation. And they're the people to make the decision. Right. So uh, anyway, I I had a very, very uh, capable nurse as one of my team in the, uh, in the search and rescue in the uh, air ambulance set up. And she said, oh, there's a very good e- expert down in Wellington. You can go down and see him and have a medical with him and find out how things are. <coughs> so I did, and the specialist said there's nothing wrong with you. I said, yes, I know that. I said, well, you tell civil aviation, and civil aviation. He did. He notified them and sent them the paperwork, and they gave me my license back. Wow. I mean. Okay. Four months later, the same lady probably fired me and said, my eyes aren't up to spec. And like a clot, I accepted it, although I, I still don't wear glasses as such, actually. And there's nothing wrong with my eyes at all. And I had used the same specialist for 30 years, having my eyes done regularly. Yeah, uh, But I... I regret it now, I'm um, not but I just shook my shoulder and said, Oh, blood! I've done enough anyway. And how old were
0: you
3: then? 78? I was 77 at that stage, yeah. Wow. And they said, That's enough. Okay. So, uh, and a number of us who had suffered the same problems with the same, Lady doctor and CAA complained, and
0: uh,
3: she was fired. Right. She lost her job. Right. Okay. And uh, however, there we are. <laughs> I, I, I still had time working with civil aviation. And I had one chap in particular. I wasn't qualified as a pilot, but I had I still had all those qualifications. and i I flew with one chap for ten years, working him up to speed to qualify for an instrument waiting.
0: Yep. And
3: i I didn't. I couldn't do it as a pilot. I, I could only do it as a passenger.
0: Okay, yeah.
3: But uh, it, it kept me in the middle, involved with aviation. And I also, of course, have spent 20 years writing manuals and what have you for the various area clubs to hand on to people who wanted to fly or people in the early stages of flying. Right. Right. And uh, I, I'm i currently still working on my book. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Uh,
0: don't say that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I was fully committed. So
0: do, do you still go out to the airport and, and sort of keep, keep in touch with people? I know you're down. Yes,
3: I used to go out to... to uh, Work and say hello, I'm sorry, to um, uh, to Air Force, the, the Aero yeah. Club, yeah. and usually on a Sunday and say hello, but they don't seem to want to know anything at you know, right. all. They, they all have expert advice these days and who is it it's all. Yeah. But however, I... Uh, I sort of keep in touch. I keep in Well, there's all these people in Bomber Command who are always around, actually, and we say day every now and again. Yeah. Uh, I I know Bomber Command took took putting on me, of all things, but I I was never in Bomber Command. I flew Lancaster, said so.
0: Yes, yeah. Well, and, and also you drop bombs, so I guess you qualify.
3: <laughs> oh yes, that's definitely. Yeah,
0: yeah.
3: yeah. And, uh, it's it's a different world now.
0: It is. It sure is. As you know, it is anyway.
3: Yeah. I think I've probably settled a by now, haven't I?
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I wondered, are there any incidents or or particular things that you have have happen while you were flying that stick in your mind? Any stories that you wanted to tell? I oh, of them, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd love to hear that. I'd love to hear some of them.
3: Search and Rescue was a very interesting job because very often we were given the details of such and such a has come unstuck. Would you go and rescue it or go and sort it out and the the, the Westpac mm-hmm. with the helicopters yeah could, couldn't generally go out there because it was the, the actual positions that were given to us as, as to where the boat was at the particular time Uh, was semi-hours different by the time we arrived there. And we used the fixed-wing aircraft basically to carry out a a dedicated search to find the actual vehicle, the actual vessel so that we could home the helicopter onto it and it could do its job of either rescuing or whatever. Right. Okay. And uh, as such, it was a quite a demanding job, but a genuine one where you felt a lot better because it succeeded.
0: Yes. Yeah. Definitely.
3: And uh, I, I don't have any contacts. Well, of course, at the moment I'm we're living down in Napier Way, actually, and, I don't have any contact at all with the uh, Westpac. Uh, uh, and we, of course, we had the odd one who bent an aeroplane every now and again. and It happened. And yep. uh, we, uh, I, had, I had a very exciting uh, Air ambulance flight on one occasion where a Japanese lady had fallen off a flying fox. Oh yes, and had damaged her back. And they, she arranged. She was Japanese, lady, she had, she had only arranged to go back to Japan on an aircraft, which was Japanese, and arriving at it and it was would be in Auckland to leave at 9 o'clock on a Sunday morning. And, of course, they got hold of me and said, here, can you go down to Christchurch Airport and pick this lady up and bring her back to Auckland? Right, yep. And I said, yes, I can do that. And I took my medical team with me. And, unfortunately, we got a, a wonderful... Northwest wind, which created absolute havoc on the way down there. Oh, right. and we got a, the the nurses got and the medical staff got a terrible running ride and said, "You can't carry a passenger who is injured in an aircraft like this." And uh, Of course, I'd done it all at night because there was not much time available to get back to Auckland in time for the aircraft leaving (coughs) for Japan. And uh, they said, what are you going to do? And I said, what time are you getting airborne? What time do you want to go? Oh, well, we'll need to leave about two o'clock in the morning. And I said, well, we can't fly in the conditions which were available at that time. Uh, best I can do is probably postpone it and cut it close to the time that the aircraft even leaving often. And uh, if I can do it in daylight rather than in the dark, I can dodge the wind. And they gave in and said, yes, all right. And we eventually got hold of them. We had, we had got down there at about uh, 11 o'clock of an evening to leave at 2. And I said, you can postpone it and we'll leave at 4. And it takes me four hours to get to Auckland, which means 8 o'clock in Auckland at the earliest. Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, and so they brought the nurse. They brought the sick lady out in and, and a stretcher and put her on board the aircraft. And I did the anything that was humanly possible. I left. I left Christchurch Airport and flew at about a hundred feet maximum, fifty miles off the coast of New Zealand. Heading towards Chile <laughs> because to to get away from the Northwest Wind. Wow. And it was quite smooth. It was possible, of course, at that height to be able to dodge the rough weather.
2: Yeah.
3: And we went 50 miles off the coast, turned back again, and stayed at low level through the straits and up to one more to Wanganui and at that stage the wind had abated to me and I managed to climb to altitude and got to got to Auckland round about half past eight in the morning and taxied up to the Japanese aircraft and the nurses took the lady and checked her out and said, Oh, well, she's all right, she'll be okay. And the Japanese crew said, yes, we'll, we knew we had to go, we'll, we'll be on time, on schedule. And uh, they took her and put her on board. And the uh, nurses came back and said to me, you've done, it. you've done it properly. She will not become a paraplegic. Uh, I said, "Thank goodness for that!"
0: Wow, excellent.
3: But of all the years, of all the years of and the various types of flying I've done, that's one of the things which really makes you feel a lot better. <laughs>
0: Absolutely, yeah.
3: They and the funny thing is that having done ten years uh, on search and rescue and Air evidence-working, what have you. I've managed to get airborne and do the job, and I took off with a certain number of people on board and landed with the same number afterwards. Oh, right. So I, I had ladies who were expecting youngsters that didn't arrive or were airborne. Yeah. And I also uh, had people on board who didn't die while they were passengers on board. Wow. So uh, I had the same number for takeoff and the same number for landing. And I was very satisfied with the way in which that particular role was done.
0: Absolutely. That's a great record when you think about it. I mean, 10 years, uh, that's great.
3: Oh, I was lucky i I got, I got the timing right. Yeah. And uh, in those days, I had some very capable people who knew how to handle a job on the on the medical side.
0: right. Yep. Uh,
3: and they knew exactly how to do the searches, which taught, taught them how to search using their eyes and looking out the windows right and uh, we found everything we looked for and we serviced it and put the ambulances on the job properly
0: yep uh, and there i am yeah i'm still here Excellent. What What was the type of aircraft that, that twin engine aircraft that you were flying on those missions?
3: Well, well originally, the first one was a, a Piper Aztec. Oh, yes. Uh, and then it became a Piper Navajo. Yep. Which increased the number of people you could carry. Yep. Which we needed badly, actually, anyway. Our original, our original team was uh, uh, one pilot and two one navigator and two lookouts or two radio people that you, who shared the lookout work yep and any, and we, we could carry a sick person and I think three. Medical people finish. And eventually, we eventually got with the the second aeroplane with the Navajo, we managed to handle, we could handle a crew of five and medical four and the sick person and the sick person's. Cover right, mum and dad, or uh, or whatever it was. Yeah, that it was necessary to help ease the pain.
0: Right. Okay.
3: And uh, the experts were very good. That we actually got, and we had stretches made specifically for the aircraft, which. Did the did the job a hundred percent actually? Uh, uh without, without any any complications?
0: Okay. Uh, are the um rescue helicopters still using fixed wing aircraft to do the search and rescue stuff today? Is that still happening? I don't I don't
3: know whether they're doing it. I don't have anything, any any. Well, of course, after I left Airwork, and uh, some years later, the uh, the Chinese bought Airwork.
0: Right. Yep.
3: And as such, I don't know what they do. I haven't been in touch with Air Ambulance, and I haven't been in touch with Resc- with Resc- Rescue.
0: Right. To find I, I, out whether they're still synchronized and what have you. Yeah, yeah. I I guess it's probably not so um, necessary now with GPS and all all the modern communications. You could track the ship. Um, So, yeah, I'll have to look into that. I've got some friends who are on the uh, Auckland Westpac helicopter as crewmen, so I'll ask them. Yeah. I just haven't had the opportunity to
3: circulate with these people to find out exactly what they're doing and how they're going
0: yeah yeah
3: we, uh, because we we went from from the Navajo uh, we ended up by getting a uh, a turboprop navajo
0: okay
3: uh, which was quite brilliant. It carried it carried 11 people wow. which was one pilot and 10 which was the crew and the, eject, the, the uh, specialist crew yep. and people that were escorting the sick person and so on. We managed to get. We managed to do quite a lot of ops, which involved the carriage of eleven people on board the aircraft. Right, and we had we had a battle with civil aviation over that one because when in really forest product bought that aeroplane, the CIA chairman said, ah, oh, if you don't carry 10 passengers or 10 persons on board, you have to pay duty.
0: Ah, yeah, yeah.
3: And the duty was very expensive. And I we chairman said, no, we don't need that. We only need one pilot to operate the aeroplane. Yeah. finished and they said, "No, that doesn't work like that." And they sent a number of people all the way to America to the factory at Piper. Yeah, to discuss this because we said we only we only need a one part crew and ten passengers with a minimum that were acceptable to customs.
0: Okay. To yep.
3: And uh customs were the ones that sent the people all the way to, to Piper. Because they went to Piper and went and Piper Tener and says that's crazy. It's a single it's a, it is a single pilot aeroplane designed as such to do that. Yeah. And they're doing their job properly. And right. In the end, they came back and said, "Sorry, it's all right. We give <laughs> <God>. in."
0: <laughs> Typical bureaucracy, isn't it?
3: I'm afraid so. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, we've won.
0: <laughs> well, you've had a uh, you had a long, interesting career. Uh, when you look back, is there one aircraft type that you thought was your favorite?
3: What was my favorite? Well, I suppose. The years on the Sunderland were the most useful ones. Yeah. uh, Because we had up to 20 hours available for flying, if necessary. Wow. And of course, we could fly over uh, mortar all day long or all night long. And it it did anything. Yeah. any other, far more far more than the helicopters could and we could maneuver and use it to get a, a boat or a ship or whatever it was uh, into a position where the helicopter was in a position to be able to go out there and do its job without having to start looking to find out how to do it right and the, the uh first, first well I, I i flew jet aircraft as well actually they're interesting yeah but uh yeah the, the 1040 which was our turbo crop aircraft which we used with the uh, area, Westpac setup yep. was probably the nicest aeroplane to fly. It, it had a limitation of about six hours. That's
0: okay. Right. Yep.
3: But uh, it it flew there it flew the job perfectly and if uh, effort, effortlessly.
0: Right. Okay.
3: And. Uh, and uh, I did fifty I did fifty seven years of flying. Wow. Before I took my license off me and I'd have probably still be airborne today. They <laughs> 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 so had to continue to do so, but it doesn't matter.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: It was good company. I had we had a lot of, lot of fun with a lot of people who understand. And also do the same thing. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. Well, thank uh, you very much, Lou. It's been fascinating to uh, talk with you and and hear about your long career.
3: Please keep in touch. Or we've we've got a, a means of keeping in touch with you anyway. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Absolutely.
3: And yep. uh, if there's some way we can explain something to you, or, or eventually I produce my memoirs book. <laughs> yeah.
0: And you'd be most welcome. Well, thank you. No, that'll be that'll be something to look forward to. And, uh, and uh, I, I hope that you also have a, a very happy 100th birthday in a few weeks' time. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.